Chapter 11, Part 5 of History of the Christian Church During the First Six Centuries. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Sean F. Sawyers. History of the Christian Church During the First Six Centuries by S. Cheatham. Chapter 11 Controversies on the Faith. Part 5. The Originistic Controversy. Origen was, as we have seen in the third century, the great teacher of theology in the Christian Church. The time, however, came when they who had followed in his footsteps turned against their guide. Origen's teaching was that of a time of seeking and forming, and seemed to some of those who looked back to it from the standpoint of a more definite system to transgress the bounds of orthodoxy. All the great party leaders of the 4th century had appealed to him. The Arians claimed his support for their doctrine that the Lord was a created being, and subordinate to the Father. Their opponents found in his works the assertion that the Son was begotten of the Father from all eternity. He had, in fact, for several generations, many distinguished adherents both in Antioch and in Alexandria. These no doubt studied and understood him, but many joined in the fray who did not. Men whose conceptions of God and of the soul of man were, however little they were conscious of it, materialistic, naturally hated his spiritual teaching, and regarded him as the most subtle and the most dangerous of heretics. Many of the monks were of this anthropomorphic school, yet it was among monks and hermits that Epiphanius, detected what he thought a heresy derived from the teaching of Origen, and he felt himself bound, as the champion of orthodoxy, to try to close the source of error. His first steps with this view were taken on a visit which he paid to Jerusalem. Here, in the later years of the fourth century, had been formed a group of men devoted equally to ascetic life and to the study of theology. The center of this group was John, the Bishop of Jerusalem, himself an ardent admirer of Origen. Among its members were Rufinus, who during his stay in Egypt had been a pupil of the Originist Didymus, and Jerome, then an eager student of the works of Origen, whose fame, whether as a theologian or as an expositor of scripture, he desired to emulate. He had already begun to make his master known to the West by means of Latin translations when murmurs against his orthodoxy reached his ears, and soon afterwards Epiphanius came into his neighborhood and preached against his errors. Epiphanius was generally reverenced as a saint, and great regard was paid to his opinions. Bishop John, however, who seems to have regarded him as a narrow-minded fanatic, was not won over. Epiphanius, therefore, broke off communion with him, and required Jerome and his monks at Bethlehem to do the same. He himself, ignoring the episcopal rights of John, ordained Jerome's brother, Paulinanias, to the priesthood. Jerome now found many errors in the author whom he had lately admired, and so severed himself from his old friend Rufinus, who could not so readily leave his first love. By the intervention of Theophilus of Alexandria, the strife in Palestine was for the time appeased. But Rufinus, 
after his return to the West, published a translation of Pamphilus's Defense of Origin, in the preface to which he glanced at his detractors, but at the same time guarded himself against the supposition that he himself shared the opinions attributed to him on the Trinity and on the Resurrection. These opinions, he contended, were not origins, but interpolated by heretics into his works. Further, in the preface to his translation of Origen de Principis, he attempted to defend his practice of toning down certain risky expressions of his author, alleging that Jerome, in his Originistic period, had done the same. Jerome, greatly provoked, replied, denying the truth of some of Rufinus's allegations, and trying by all means to clear himself of the charge of Originism. The principal false opinions which he attributed to the incriminated teacher were these. Origen declares that as it is improper to say that the Son can see the Father, so it is unbefitting to suppose that the Spirit can see the Son, and that souls are in this body bound as in a prison house. While before man was created, they were among the blessed beings in heavenly places. He asserts that the devil and the evil spirits will sometimes repent and be numbered among the blessed ones. He interprets the coats of skins, which were given to Adam and his wife after the fall, to mean human bodies. He denies the resurrection of the flesh. He allegorizes paradise in such a way as to deprive it of all historical reality making the trees, angels, and the rivers the heavenly virtues. The waters which were above the heavens he understands to be divine and supernal powers. The waters on and under the earth devilish and infernal powers. He asserts that man, after his expulsion from paradise, lost the image and likeness of God in which he had been made. Thereupon arose a painful literary contest between Jerome and Rufinus, exasperated probably by the former friendship of the combatants. The Roman bishop Anastasius, instigated by Marcella and other friends of Jerome, summoned Rufinus to appear and answer for himself before his tribunal. Rufinus, however, though he sent a written defense, did not appear, and Anastasius proceeded to condemn Origen of whose works he avowedly knew nothing, and to express strong disapproval of Rufinus. Theophilus himself had, in 399, declared himself opposed to the anthropomorphism which, in the strongest opposition to the views of Origen, attributed to God a human form. God, he contended, alone of all existing things, was to be conceived as purely immaterial. In consequence of this declaration, he was fiercely attacked by some of the fanatical monks of the Egyptian desert, and so cowed that he consented to condemn the works of Origen. On this change of views, he attacked the Nitrian monks, who were for the most part devoted to Origen, and with whom he had once been in entire sympathy. Against these men and all who held their views, he proceeded with unrelenting harshness. At a synod in Alexandria, about the year 400, a sentence of condemnation was passed on all who taught the doctrines of Origen, or even read his books. When the Originistic monks refused to obey the decrees of the synod, Theophilus incited the anthropomorphists among them, who were the majority, to drive out these Originist brethren. 
these escaping with some difficulty found no refuge even with their friend john of jerusalem for theophilus in an encyclical letter had stigmatized them as wild and dangerous fanatics they at last resolved to present themselves at the imperial court at constantinople where they hoped for the support of its bishop john chrysostom the bishop received them kindly and took measures for their maintenance as they were for the present under anathema he felt himself precluded from admitting them to communion but he wrote to theophilus begging him to absolve the refugees these however had no mind to submit tamely to theophilus's proceedings and desired to bring a formal charge against him before the emperor it was at the same time falsely reported to theophilus that john had admitted the monks to communion Chrysostom was anxious to keep clear of a violent controversy, but the aggrieved monks gained the ear of the empress Eudoxia, and brought it to pass that the emperor summoned a synod to Constantinople, over which the bishop of that city was to preside, to pass judgment on the proceedings of Theophilus, who was duly cited to appear. The effect of this citation was that he conceived a violent hatred for Chrysostom, whom he had determined to ruin. He worked upon Epiphanius, now a very old man, to take a fresh step in his opposition to the opinions of Origen. This bishop summoned a synod of his diocese, Cyprus, which anathematized the writings of Origen. He then took a journey to Constantinople, where he requested Chrysostom to withdraw his protection from the monks and join in the condemnation which had just been pronounced in Cyprus. Chrysostom, though by no means an undiscriminating admirer of Origen, not unnaturally resisted this attempt at dictation, and Epiphanius, a man of honest and straightforward character, finding that he had been misled as to the views of his opponents, probably began to suspect that he was being made the tool of an intriguer. He therefore left the capital and sailed for Cyprus, but died before he reached home. The further proceedings of Eudoxia and Theophilus against the good bishop of Constantinople do not belong to the originistic controversy. His enemies were determined to accomplish his ruin, and the charges brought against him, without any regard to their truth, were such as gave the civil power a pretext for interfering. Theophilus, in spite of all he had said against him, continued to devote himself to the study of Origen, and for this and other reasons, incurred the contempt of all right-minded men. In spite of official condemnation, the influence of Origen's genius lived on. In the 6th century, there were many Originists among the monks of the great monasteries founded by St. Sabas in Palestine, and four of these were expelled from the New Laura by their abbot, Agapetus, on account of their opinions. His successor, Mamas, reinstated them, but in the year 530, Sabas himself visited Constantinople and begged the emperor Justinian to expel the originists. Before, however, any steps could be taken to effect this, Sabas died, and originism continued to spread in Palestine, especially through the influence of a monk named Domitian and of Theodore Askedas, who was prominent in the Monophysite controversy. Both of these men had influence at court, and under their protection the originists gained the upper hand in the Lauras, and expelled their opponents. 
The latter were, however, favored by Ephraim, patriarch of Antioch, and the emperor Justinian, when the dispute was brought before him, was induced by the Roman legate Pelagius, afterwards Pope, to put forth a theological treatise against Origen, ending with a list of opinions which he held to deserve anathema. This was subscribed by Menes the Patriarch, and by those bishops who were in Constantinople at the time, that is, by those who constituted the home synod of that city. The same synod appears to have anathematized fifteen propositions found or said to be found in the works of Origen. As, however, Cyril of Scythopolis and Evagrius agree in stating that the Fifth Ecumenical Council, held at Constantinople, condemned Origen, these anathemas had been attributed to that council, even by authorities as early as the latter part of the 8th century. But as three popes of the 6th century attribute to the Fifth Council only the decision on the three chapters, and say nothing of any canon affecting Origen, while the acts of the council contain no mention of any discussion of Origen's opinions, we may fairly presume that the anathemas have the sanction only of the home synod of Constantinople, which was simply the echo of Justinian. Origen appears indeed to be condemned in the eleventh canon of the fifth council, but the name is probably interpolated. Theodorus Ascadas seems, in fact, to have diverted the emperor's attention from the originists, whom he favored though he had subscribed to the emperor's edict against them, and under his protection they became dominant in Palestine. They were soon, however, divided against themselves. One party, considering the soul of Christ to have existed before the Incarnation, and to be itself divine, received from their friends the name of Prototestae, but from their enemies that of Tetrodotae, as making four persons in the divine essence. Another was that of the Isochristi, who taught that in the end all souls would become like that of Christ. A representative of the latter, Macarius, the second of that name, was even elected to the patriarchal throne of Jerusalem. The Prototestae, now, seeing the danger of being crushed, gave up their theory of pre-existence and rejoined the Orthodox Church. Macarius was driven from his see by Justinian, who caused the Catholic Eustochius to be appointed in his stead. The Lauras of Palestine were purged of originists. From this time, the originists as a party vanished from history. But there have never been wanting distinguished men who have honored Origen as one of the leaders of Christian thought. Priscillianism a western echo of eastern error is probably to be found in the Spanish sect of Priscillianists. This derived its origin and its name from Priscillian, a man of wealth, family, and education, and evidently of an enthusiastically religious temperament. In his works, Priscillian shows himself an earnest believer in Christ, the only God. In fact, he so emphasizes the Godhead of Christ and the unity of God as to suggest that he regarded the Holy Trinity somewhat as Swindenborg in later days regarded it. And he seems to have taken a view of the Incarnation which did not much differ from that of Apollinaris. He insisted with great earnestness on the wide distribution of the gift of prophecy in the Church of Christ. It was, he taught, by no means limited to the prophets of the canonical scriptures. 
everywhere and at all times might God raise up witnesses for himself. Doubtless, he regarded himself as such a witness. From his exposition of the creed, it may probably be inferred that he believed in the immortality of the soul, hardly in the resurrection of the flesh. Whatever dogmas he may have held, it is clear that he was possessed by a strong ascetic spirit. He felt keenly the contrast between the church and the world, that the friendship of the world is enmity with God was a living principle with him. He seems to have been influenced by origin, perhaps also by the Luciferans, the disciples of Lucifer of Cagliari, who were numerous in Spain. Whatever may have been the errors of Priscillian, we can hardly fail to recognize in him one of those eager spirits which can draw to them sympathetic souls. Not finding the church of his own day sufficiently pure from the world, he established meetings of his disciples, not with the view, it would appear, of separating them from the Catholic Church, but of raising them to a higher level of Christian life. These conventicles had, however, probably the effect of making the Priscillianists less regular attendants at the public worship of the Church. At all events, they gave offense to those in authority. The Bishop of Cordova, Hyginus, informed the Metropolitan Edacius of Merida of the spread of this irregular worship, and a council at which twelve bishops attended was held at Saragossa to consider the matter. It passed eight canons intended principally to check the irregular meetings. They forbade women to be present at conventicles where men exhorted, or themselves to meet for mutual instruction. They forbade all persons to go into seclusion during Lent or during the three weeks preceding the Epiphany, and strictly enjoined them to attend the services in their churches regularly during those periods. They forbade such ascetic practices as fasting on Sunday or walking barefoot. They forbade any man to assume the title of teacher, doctor, without authority. That these canons were directed against the Priscillianists, there is no doubt though they are nowhere named in them. They do not impute false doctrine to those whom they have in view, but censure irregularities and excessive asceticism, an asceticism which probably disinclined those who practice it, as did the English Puritans in later days, to take part in the festivities of Christmastide. The Priscillianists were not present at the council, having apparently not been summoned, but in their absence two bishops, Instantius and Salvianus, who had been won over to the side of the ascetics, with Elpidius and Priscillian himself, who were laymen, were condemned and excommunicated. Iphicaius, bishop of Sasaba, who was probably the more ready to proceed vigorously against ascetics, as he was himself a man much given to self-indulgence, was commissioned to bring this decree to the knowledge of all bishops, and especially of Hyginus, who had received the heretics to communion. Adacius, after his return to Merida, was accused of some unnamed transgression, upon which many of his clergy withdrew from communion with him. Priscillian, now bishop of Avila, coming to Merida with a view to make peace, was beaten by some of Adacius's partisans, but seems nevertheless to have found some favor with the laity of the place. There now was serious division and heated controversy in several cities of Spain, and, as is usual in such cases, 
charges and countercharges flew thickly about. It was discovered that the Priscillianists were Gnostics or Manichaeans, and given to magical arts, a charge to which some plausibility was given by their seclusion and asceticism. Priscillian himself repudiated and condemned Manas in the most emphatic manner, as he did also the Arians, the Patripassians, and many other heretics. But it is not improbable that, consciously or unconsciously, he agreed with some of the Gnostics in regarding the soul as having left the realms of light and purity and become entangled in the chains of evil matter. He not only adopted the curious fancy, which appears in almanacs even to our own time, that the several signs of the zodiac influenced each some particular part of the human body, as Aries the head, Taurus the neck, Gemini the arms, Cancer the breast, and so forth. But he recognized a similar correspondence in the twelve patriarchs to the parts of the soul, as Reuben to the head, Judah to the breast, Levi to the heart, and the rest. As he was followed by certain ladies who were devoted to him, it is not wonderful that charges of immorality were made against him. Whatever was his guilt, his enemies were powerful, and procured from the weak emperor Gratian a rescript banishing the Priscillianists from the empire. Priscillian then, with the bishops of his party, he took himself to Italy, hoping to convince Damasus of Rome and the great Ambrose, one of the chief advisers of the young emperor, of his innocence. In this he failed, but he succeeded, it was said by bribery, in procuring a rescript, repealing that which had been issued against him and his followers, and ordering the restitution of their churches, to which they accordingly returned. Ithacaius now became an exile. Just at this crisis Maximus, a Spaniard, put Gratian to flight and seized the imperial power. To him Ithacaius turned and induced him to order Instantius and Priscillian to be brought before a synod at Bordeaux. Instantius was deposed from his bishopric, while Priscillian, refusing to admit the authority of the council, appealed to the usurping emperor. He deputed Evadius, a man of harsh and stern character, to hold the trial, at which Ithacaius, who had so keen a scent for heresy that he discovered it even in the saintly Martin of Tours, appeared as his accuser. Evadias found the accused guilty of sorcery, and the emperor sentenced him to death, together with some of his followers. Instantias was banished to the Sicily Islands. The remains of those who were put to death were carried to Spain, where the devotees who had before honored Priscillian as a saint now reverenced him as a martyr. The charge on which Priscillian was condemned was fairly within the cognizance of an imperial tribunal. But as everyone knew that he had in fact suffered as a heretic, many of the best men of the time were offended that spiritual error should have been punished by a civil court, and that even to the shedding of blood. Martin of Tours remonstrated in the most energetic manner both with Maximus and with Ithacaius, and public feeling was so strong against the latter that he was deposed from his see. Edacius quitted by his voluntary resignation. The whole proceeding had in the opinion of a contemporary, Sulpicius Severus, a very unfortunate effect upon the church. Priscillian and his companions head the long and dreary list of those who have suffered for their opinions at the hands of Christians, 
the same pains and penalties which Christians had once endured at the hands of pagans. End of chapter 11, part 5. Recording by Sean F. Sawyers, O'Fallon, Missouri.